Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Tom, you're looking like you need some more rest. You're like, oh. <laughs> All right, so welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm really glad that the weather turned out the way that it did today, even though it was like super gross today. I don't know what the deal was, but thankful. I was thinking about, I was hoping that it wouldn't deter anyone from coming out tonight because I've been looking forward to this for so many weeks. Um, but I'm very, very thankful. We've got some other people that are going to be coming in here pretty soon, so... But we need to get things rolling to make sure that we have plenty of time to get through our stuff for this evening. So before we go any further, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight, and then we will go from there. Heavenly Father, um, this topic tonight is something that uh, is uh, very personal for me, and um, a lot of things that I've wrestled with, a lot of things that I've uh, personally fought with, um, even at times where I've had debates with other students of the Bible and other people that claim these false doctrines, things that even when I was a teenager, I had a lot of people that were much older and smarter than me try to uh, convince me of these things and uh, just never really sat right in my heart. And I guess the big thing for me is that I, I just don't, I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to stand up on a soapbox and, and just rant and rave uh, against Calvinism per se. I want to actually magnify you, and as we magnify you and your word, that it would actually just completely shatter all false doctrine. Uh, that's really what we need to do. And so I just ask that you would get me completely out of the way, but at the same time, um, I, I want you to be able to use me however you want. And I know that uh, even the events leading up to this point in my life have really shaped a lot of different things about my personality and the way that I um, just even interact with you on a daily basis, my personal walk with you, and, and even when it comes to doctrine and theology. And so I want to thank you for that, but I also know my own shortcomings, and I just don't want to muddy the waters. I really don't. I want to make things very, very clear. So I pray, God, that you'd help us tonight, give us clarity, um, give us your word to guide our vision in this matter and that you would be our final authority on this topic, and that we would just trust you and you alone. Um, so help us, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the theology of Calvinism. Now, there, there's several things in my heart and my mind before we even go any farther into the study sheet that I definitely want to, to take some time just to kind of preface. Um, there are some difficulties to this kind of study. Um, as you can imagine, when you sit down and you think through uh, some of the aspects of this, um, some of you have dealt with theological matters and have dealt with Calvinists personally. Um, some of you might even continue to believe some of these things, even in this room. Um, some of you have, have probably, um, you know, at some point have, have just never really thought too deeply about theology. So, so my goal in this study is that I want to make things very practical, very applicable, I want to make sure that it is right across the plate for everyone to understand, no matter what your background is. Um, Scott McLean taught a series on, on Calvinism several years ago. I can't remember exactly how many years ago, but I was going back through his material, and it is very, very thorough, very thorough, and very intense. And some of you love that kind of stuff, and others of you are like, no, that puts me to sleep completely. But I will say it is a fantastic study, and it gives great, great detail 
And so after going through some of the things that we go through in this study, if you're looking for more information, that information can be made available to you all. You can go to the Welcome Center. You can get copies of the study sheets and copies of those particular messages. But what he wanted to accomplish is different from what I want to accomplish. So it's not a knock on his study at all. But I also, my goal as we go through the purpose of the study is I want to make sure that this is something that everybody can understand. So it doesn't matter what your exposure has been to Calvinism and theology. If you've had zero, you'll be able to walk away with, with stuff and be more equipped. If you've had tons, you'll be able to walk away and have the proper things to equip you even better to earnestly contend for the faith. The other thing that's really hard about this study is that in Proverbs 26 and 27, I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you all. There are two verses that seem to be very contradictory. One is found in Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. And it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And then it says in the next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Those two seemingly contradictory verses really sum up for me my dealings with Calvinists. Because in, in a biblical sense, and obviously I'm against Calvinists, so I'm going to be presenting this from a more biased perspective, but the Bible is going to be magnified, and I want this to show you why Calvinism is wrong, not because of me. But they are fools when it comes to the Scriptures. And if you answer that fool according to their folly, and you get on that equal playing field with them, there's a very good chance that you will just be like them, just like them, their approach and everything. So we can really be guilty when we confront these sorts of things of doing the exact same thing to them that they do to us. And this is true with any false doctrine. But in this context, you have to be careful. But at the same time, we're told to earnestly contend for the faith. We are God's ambassadors, and we are his advocates. And so we should answer fools according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own conceit, because we don't want them to get away with it. So this is the tension. This is hard because there are some times where it is not good to open your mouth and debate. And chances are, and I would say in general, especially from my experiences, is that I really have to check my motives because do I want to debate because I just want to be right? Or am I debating because I am trying to win them over to the Lord? Or am I trying to win them over to the Lord, but really I just want to be right? Because a lot of us can have that streak of pride in us where we just want to fight because we know we're right and doggone it. I don't give a rip and I'm right and I'm just going to keep fighting until I beat them down. (laughs) And you can see how Jesus would be like, okay, now you're starting to act like Peter. You can't really do that. That's something that Peter would do. And so we have to be careful. And so this is where we need to ask God for wisdom, discernment especially, on how to go about these things, because these are not easy things. Sometimes you get into an argument, and let me give you an example. I've gotten into arguments on Calvinism in my theology class that I took at Moody Bible Institute, where I knew that my audience was not the Calvinist. I knew that my debate with that Calvinist was not going to go anywhere. I was not going to change their opinion. I would do the best that I could, but I was really not going to change their opinion on any particular theological stance. What I knew my audience was going to be everybody else that was witnessing the debate. And so my heart was to win everybody else over who was really waffling and teetering from one side to the other and really didn't know which, which way to go. But I had to be, I had to be careful because, you know, I, I've, got a, I've got a little competitive streak in me, and 
I mean, I like being, I like being right, you know? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? Everyone likes being right. And so you've got, we've got to be careful. And so that's why tonight I want to spend the majority of our time going through what is the purpose of this study? Because we have to get this right. This is really going to lay the groundwork for everything else. If we do not get the purpose of the study correct, then we're not going to be able to go anywhere. And so I want to take enough time and really slowly work through the purpose of this study, and then also hopefully we'll be able to get to uh, defining the terms and some of the theological terms that we're going to come across when you start delving into some of this material. Okay, so let's talk about the purpose of the study. So there are several things we're going to accomplish. So first of all, we want to discover the history of Calvinism. Calvinism goes under many different names. In fact, a legitimate Calvinist doesn't even like the term Calvinist or Calvinism. Uh, they are either a Reformed theologian or they believe in doctrines of grace. They believe in divine determinism is another one that's thrown around. They believe in predeterminism, predestination, election, and there's many others. So those are some of the the words that are thrown around with Calvinists. But we want to discover the history and the origin of Calvinism and really where did it come from, because it's very important. When you really study where something came from, it gives and it sheds light on all sorts of different things. That's very important. So we will accomplish that, and that's one of our focuses going to be for next week. Secondly, we want to study and analyze the doctrines of Calvinism and compare them to the actual words of the Bible, comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is very important. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Anything that we believe, any sort of doctrinal position that you may hold, you always want to lay that open, wide open, and compare it to the words of God, the Word of God, the actual words of God. Very important. Otherwise, how do you know that that doctrinal stance is actually legitimate? You have to put it up on the altar. You have to make sure that you're comparing it with Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. I love these verses. I was just writing these out last week, and I've just been stewing on them ever since. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures can be known, even from a child, they are able to make you wise unto salvation. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 16 and 17 are very powerful verses in your Bible. There are four things that the Word of God is good for, according from, to God's perspective. It is good for doctrine. First and foremost, it is good for doctrine. And we're going to talk about what doctrine is, but just a very a, a great way to represent that would be the things that are right. So the Word of God tells us what is right. It tells us good doctrine. It is for reproof. Those are the things that are wrong. The Bible tells us what is wrong. It tells us what's right, and it tells us what's wrong. It is also good for correction. The Bible tells you how to fix what is wrong, which is why it needs to be the authority in our life. And then fourthly, it is instruction in righteousness, and that is how to keep it fixed. I heard this from a preacher one time, and I'm like, whoo, that is gold. I'm writing it in my Bible, stealing it, and propagating it. It tells you what is right, what is wrong, how to fix what is wrong, and how to keep it fixed, and why. Verse 17 
that the man of God may be perfect. And the definition of perfect here is throughly furnished unto all good works. The Word of God is your number one resource for everything needed in this life to be godly and fruitful and to represent God correctly. And this is where all false doctrine goes astray because they leave the authority of the Scriptures. And we have to establish everything we believe based upon what the Bible actually says. And we're going to get into that. I want you to look at this verse in Isaiah 66 too. I love this verse. It says, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. People that believe in false doctrine are not obedient to the last statement of that verse. They do not have a poor and contrite spirit. Oftentimes it's the opposite. And they do not tremble at his word. And what do we mean by tremble? We mean that it is everything. My opinion does not matter. God's opinion matters. And he has given his opinion in black and white. And whatever this says, this is what I believe. This is very important. Very important. And most people get this one wrong. So I want to take some time to really understand this. We have to be obedient to the rules of Bible study. If you've never taken how to study the Bible, you have to take that class. The next time it's offered, take that class, which I think it's actually pretty soon, isn't it, Aaron? So within the next, what, several weeks or something like that? Yeah, March. March. Perfect. So this is a great segue to that. Take that class. And if you've taken it and you're like, you know what, I need to sharpen up on it, take it again. Take it again. This is so important. We have to know the Bible in its proper context. We have to know the Bible according to its proper people group. There are places in your Bible where it's not talking to you, Gentile. It's not talking to you, church. It's talking to the Jews. Now, all the Bible is for us, but not all of it is written to us, and that's very important. All false doctrine can be traced back to that particular rule of Bible study because people take things that don't belong to them and then start saying, oh, this is what the Bible says about this, that, and the other. It's crazy. That's what they do. There's a time period rule. There are certain things that God said to certain people at certain times. It's very important. Every word and every event matters. God put every single word and every event in the Bible in its place on purpose. He could have chosen to use any person and any combination of words, and what you hold in your hand is exactly what he wanted you to have. And you need to be confident in that. We've got to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. God's book is understood with God's book. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like that. They call it circular reasoning. And I say, forget you. (laughs) It's God's rule of Bible study. He has explained his word with his word. There are often times when you go to a dictionary and you're not going to get God's definition. You have to see how God uses that word throughout the Scripture. And then the other sad part is try doing that in other translations of the Bible outside of the King James Bible. You'll lose it all. It's it's amazing. When you take the King James Bible and you search for a certain word, it is used consistently throughout the Scriptures. And then you take that same word and look it up in the NIV or the ESV or the New King James even, and you'll lose it. Its chain is lost throughout the Scriptures. It's amazing. We have a precious book. God is known, another rule of Bible studies, by his creation. You can look out into creation. You can understand deep truths about God. There are things in your Bible that seem to be apparent contradictions, but they aren't. 
They just want to make you a better student of the Bible. The consistency of God. God uses things consistently throughout the Scriptures. The literal rule. I love this one. God meant things to be taken literally unless he's clear that it shouldn't be taken that way. Very important. We're going to use all these in this study. And this is a big one that's going to be used in this one. The clarity rule. Never violate a clear passage with an obscure passage. Oh my goodness. Calvinists are horrid at this. They will take an obscure passage and pull a truth out of it and then violate 50 other places in the Bible that go against what they say this verse means. It's terrible. Never base a doctrine on a question, the question rule. They do that all the time. Romans 9, they use that, and they are the biggest violators of that rule of Bible study. They base doctrines on questions. They also are a violator of this one, the confirmation rule. Never base a doctrine on a single verse or passage. Anytime that God is establishing a major doctrine in the Scriptures, He is going to use multiple, multiple verses. It will be very, very clear. You should be able to take any doctrinal opinion you have, let's say you write it out in your own words, and you should be finding at least, at least five to ten verses that support that statement. If you can't do that, then you've not studied the Word of God properly. And how do you know that's not just your opinion or the opinion of someone that came before you? You need to know what the Word of God actually says. Here's another big one they violate. The maturity factor. There are some things in the Bible that you are just not going to understand. And you have to be okay with it. Calvinists are not okay with it. They force things into passages all over the Bible because they're not okay, because they're smart. They're, they're frankly arrogant. We're going to get to that in a minute. But they want to be able to tell you what the Bible says. They don't want the Bible telling them what it says. And this comes down to the biggest, the biggest, most important rule in light of this study, and that is the attitude rule. You need to be humble, and you need to take everything you believe and line it up with the Bible. And if the Bible says otherwise, if the Bible comes against you and your opinions, throw yours out. The Bible must be in charge. You have to let the Word of God be the Word of God. You have to. The Bible has to be the boss. God's words are in charge, not my opinions about what I think it says, and frankly, what anyone else says. And that's, they are horrible violators of that one. What does the Bible actually say and then believe that over anything that you think or feel about what the Bible says? If you're willing to do those things, then you and God are going to have a great walk together. So we are going to study and analyze the doctrines of Calvinism, comparing them with the actual words of the Bible, and we are going to compare Scripture with Scripture. The next thing is that we're going to magnify the authority of the Scriptures. We're going to magnify the authority of the Scriptures over the traditions and philosophical musings of theologians. Now, this is very important. It goes hand in hand with that last point. We want to magnify the authority of the Scriptures. Let's take a look at a couple of verses. First one, I got it up for you. We'll look at the second one. Proverbs 2.6. I love this verse. One of my favorites. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Where are you going to go to get knowledge from the mouth of God? The Word of God. The Scriptures. God gives wisdom, and out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And there is a difference between knowledge and understanding. 
you can have knowledge and you can understand many, many things. Sorry, I used the wrong word. You can have a lot of knowledge and you can maybe articulate certain details about anything that the Bible has to say. But when do you actually understand it? When do you actually understand it? You truly understand the Word of God when you apply it and you start to live it out. When the Word of God becomes the boss. You can have a lot of knowledge, but you really don't know anything. and You don't have understanding until you begin to live out the words that come from God's mouth. So it's very important for us to understand. And then turn with me to 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16. This is one that Pastor Tom mentioned this past Sunday. And I'm so glad he did. Second Peter 3.16. So Peter is talking about Paul and Paul's writings, and he equates Paul's writings to Scripture. And that was the point that Pastor Tom was making this past Sunday. What I want you to see from this one, too, is that, and he also mentioned this as well on Sunday, is that sometimes these scriptures are hard to understand. So verse 16, also, as also in all his epistles, Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, that they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist or malign as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. What you will find with many, many people, but especially Calvinists, and they would hate me for saying this, they are unlearned and unstable. They are unlearned and they are unstable. And I'll get to that in a minute on why. But because of that state of mind and state of heart that they're in, they rest or twist the scriptures to say whatever they want it to say to make, them, make themselves feel superior. What you generally find among Calvinists is that they are arrogant and conceited. And at times, it can be easy to mistake confidence and arrogance. But they are really night and day. There's a big difference between the two. You can be confident in the scriptures. You can be confident in your beliefs, but you don't have to be arrogant about it. There's a lot of people that are arrogant and conceited. They're not confident. They're just arrogant and conceited. Calvinists claim the authority of scripture, but they never support their doctrines with the actual English words found in their own Bible. This is important. Now, they would disagree with me on this. But I'm telling you, when you get into it and you start getting down to the very root of it, it is absolutely true. And here's why. They rely heavily on the interpretations of other pastors, other preachers, and other theologians, and dead languages that are not spoken today. And by the way, a lot of them are trained, well, no, I know Greek and I know Hebrew, and they go into all these lexicons. Well, where did they get the definitions of these lexicons, the words in the lexicons? Where did they get those from? Were the lexicons inspired by God? No, where did they get them from? Other men who are theologians that supposedly know the languages that then write out the definitions. So they are getting all of their opinions from these pastors, these preachers, these theologians, and these dead languages rather than from the Holy Spirit of God and the words that he inspired, preserved, and propagated to the world. This is so important, so important. I remember being in a conversation with a young guy who got steeped in Calvinism and I remember sitting down with him, and I'm, and I'm working stuff through with him. 
And he, I, I, we were talking about even his daily devotions. And I said, okay, where are you reading right now? And he's like, well, I'm reading through like Ezekiel or some Old Testament prophet. And I said, okay. And, and then he's telling me how he does it. He has his Bible and then he has a commentary on that particular book right next to it. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question. How much time are you taking actually reading the words of your Bible rather than the interpretations of another man about the words of your Bible? And it was glaring, the difference between the two. He was spending the majority of time meditating and musing over the thoughts of another man rather than taking the time to actually get into what God actually says. So automatically, right away, who's the authority? The commentary. The guy that wrote the commentary is the authority because whatever he says, what does he say I should believe about this passage? Okay, now you're way off, you're way off track. Because now we're completely, completely out of line. And which, by the way, as another side note, people can do the exact same thing in our church. The exact same thing. They will take the interpretations of Pastor Tom or myself or any other pastor, and they will believe it because we say it rather than actually getting into the Bible themselves. And you are just as guilty. Just as guilty. Now listen, I want you to be able to trust us as pastors, and you should be able to. But we make mistakes, and we have to learn and grow just like everybody else. So there are times that we're going to be wrong about stuff. How do you know that what you believe is actually true? How do you know? There's only one way to find out. And that is by comparing your beliefs to what the Bible actually says. And that is what Calvinists will not do. They won't do it. They won't. Because if they did, they would find out that they're wrong. And this drives me nuts. Oftentimes there are some Calvinists that display humility. I've seen John Piper do this. It drives me insane. Mm, it drives me nuts. Because it's either out of ignorance, which I think in his case it's not, because he knows what he believes and he fights for it, or it's just flat out pride. And here's why. It's a false humility. Because they're the final authority for the interpretation of the scriptures. They are. They can put on a nice front as much as they want, but the reality is that they are the authority. They are the ones that are in charge of saying, this is what the Bible says. So they can be all nice and flowery, and they can be all huggy, and they can be all nice and all that kind of stuff, but the reality is, is that they are the ones that are in charge. They are the ones that will tell you what the Bible says, and that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Here in our church, we teach people, this is what the scriptures say, Believe it because the Bible says it, not because I say it. And this is where Calvinists really go way, way off track. And then they teach other people how to become their own final authority because they're disciples of those theologians and textual critics. But the reality is we need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need to learn from the Scriptures and from the Holy Ghost that wrote the Scriptures. And to be fair, this is a common trait among all, all people that believe in false doctrine. And this is proof that their doctrine is false. Because the Bible cannot be the final authority. When the Bible cannot be your final authority and you start have to pointing your fingers at other pastors, other teachers, other authors, other theologians, other church fathers, when you have to start doing that, you are running the risk of having false doctrine. You need to go to it because this is what the Bible actually says. So that's very important. Whew, I'm starting to get heated up here. All right. <laughs> Okay, here's the next point. Here's another reason why we're doing this study. 
We want to examine the heart of God through the biblical doctrine of salvation and fall in love with God. We, need to, we want to love God on a much deeper level, a much more intimate level. And this is the part that, that I, I am so thankful with all the things that I've wrestled with on the doctrine of salvation. I'm so thankful for this. Because God's heart is perpetually on display through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, God goes so far as to define love according to the gospel. And we get love so wrong on so many different levels. And when you go back to the gospel, the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that defining, unconditional love that is just unfathomable, it changes everything. And I can't wait to get into that aspect of it. And that's another reason why I'm so passionate about it, because I feel that if you're going to have a false doctrine when it comes to salvation, it is a direct affront to God himself. He, he authored the gospel with his own blood. And any doctrine that comes against it and maligns it, I hate it. I hate it. So it's important that we know that, and we want to examine it and, and fall in love with God just looking at it. And that's what we're going to do. The next thing that we want to do is we want to equip and perfect the saints of our local church in sound doctrine. And that means that we want to, in order to have that sound doctrine, we want to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints on a practical, on a practical level. Turn with me to Jude. Jude. Jude only has one chapter. I always joke if you have chapter two in your, in your Bible of Jude, then you need to toss it into the fire. All right, Jude. Verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses are so important for us to understand because we need to know how to earnestly contend for the faith because there are people, and again, all sorts of false doctrine, but in particular with Calvinists, that creep into churches in an often place because a lot of people are not fully equipped and they don't know sound doctrine and they don't have biblical discipleship. They creep into the ranks of churches and they creep in unawares. And their doctrine is blasphemy compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they rip the church apart from within. And I've seen this happen. And I know of places where this happened where pastors will have a, a Calvinistic view or a Calvinistic doctrine, but keep their mouths shut until they're in a position of authority and then impose it on the rest of the church. And meanwhile, everyone's like, what, what, what's, what's going on? I despise the fact that there are churches in our area today where the staff, all the pastors, they believe in Calvinistic doctrine and they'll never preach on it. They'll never talk about it. People go to those churches, have no idea that they're in a Calvinistic church because those pastors are just... I mean, 
they know that if they actually preach what they believe, they'd lose people and they'd lose money because that's what they're in it for. They're in it for building their own kingdom, their own reputation. They're not in it for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not in it for the work of the Lord. They're not in it. They're not in it. They're, they're in it for so many other things, but a pastor that believes something and is afraid and won't teach on it, are you kidding me? Like, why do you think you're called? I would put that out on the line. That is so dishonest and deceitful. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And that's what's happening in a lot of churches. And there are a lot of Christians that are hurt by guys like this that are just, they're jerks. And how do you think God feels about his church and his people? I mean, that's one thing on Judgment Day. I'm going to have mixed emotions, at least at this point in time. I feel like I'm going to have mixed emotions because there's going to be part of me that will be like, okay, they're going to get theirs. Like, I'm, I'm just being honest. Like, I, I feel like, whoo. But at the same time, the people that were hurt as a result. I don't like it. So we dare not let ourselves go that direction. I've already mentioned this, but it's worth saying again. We're ambassadors and advocates for the Lord. And he is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he is the Savior of our souls. This world is his enemy, and it's our enemy too, but we have to learn how to conduct ourselves the right way because we want to honor the Lord, and we want to glorify God. So we've got to learn these things to earnestly contend for the faith properly. And it's hard sometimes to have proper discernment, especially dealing with false doctrine, keeping ourselves in check. Okay, so what this study is not, what this study is not, and this goes hand in hand again with our last point as well, what this study is not, this study is not equipping believers with ammunition to fight and destroy Christians that adhere to Calvinistic theology. And I hope that that's really clear at this point, because oftentimes this is what Calvinists do to others, and that is not what this is for. We do not want to do that. There's a couple of verses I'll have up on the screen that are just, they speak to this very, very well. Proverbs 15, 2. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. We have to know how to use wisdom and understanding correctly. We have to use it the right way. There's a time and a place, and we've got to make sure that we're saying the right things at the right time in the right way or else we're going to have the mouth of the fool and we're going to pour out foolishness. Ecclesiastes 10, 12 and 13. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. And people that are even against Calvinism can fall prey to this as well. We have to use knowledge the right way. We have to. So debating these doctrinal disagreements are often endlessly futile. They are. But there are times where we have to be able to handle ourselves. We have to be able to get into conversations and, and handle things the right way so we can earnestly contend for the faith. 
So we need to learn and we need to keep learning without ceasing because here's the goal. We need to learn how to be mature in sound doctrine. That's really the goal. We need to be mature in sound doctrine. And what does that mean? So maturity in sound doctrine simply means that our life is consistent in harmony and fellowship with the words and works of our words and works and with God's words. That's really what it means. So if I'm going to be mature in sound doctrine, first of all, it's going to come out in my life. Titus 2 talks about that, that sound doctrine is adorned. It's actually something that takes place in your life. So if you have sound doctrine, it will work out on a practical level. Any doctrine that doesn't actually work out in real life is not sound doctrine. So your doctrine has to work out in your words and in your actions. And your words and your actions must be consistent with the actual words of God. This is very important. Very simple, but very, very important. So we need to be mature in sound doctrine. And it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And we'll get into more examples of that as we get into the, all the details of, of Calvinistic doctrine, because that will come up all over the place. Okay, so let's talk about our study outline. All right, so where are we going to go with this? So there's several things we're going we're gonna to cover, um, but as, as I was thinking of a comprehensive summary of what this study would look like, uh, this is what I came up with. Um, so first of all, defining Calvinism, and that's what we talked about already. And we're going to get into some of the uh, defining the terms. That's what we're going to get into next. And we're going to talk about the origin and the history of Calvinism. That will be mainly next week. We're going to talk about TULIP versus the Bible. And then we're going to get into breaking down TULIP. And as we look at that acronym, this is the summary of Calvinistic doctrine uh, that, again, many Calvinists don't like, um, but it is what it is. It's the best summary of Calvinistic doctrine. So we're going to talk about total depravity unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, and what they say it actually means. And we're also going to talk about Calvinism versus English grammar. My dad's going to take point on that one because he's got some real good nuggets that if you just believe the English Bible you have in front of you, it destroys Calvinism. I mean, destroys it. It doesn't even stand a chance. We need to talk about how do we earnestly contend for the faith? How do, how do we actually be wise with the words of God in contending for the faith? And then I'd also like to have a, a few weeks, maybe a couple weeks, depending on how many that we have, on just some personal testimonies of people that have actually dealt with Calvinism and some of the things that they learned, both good and bad, when it comes to Calvinistic doctrine. Okay, so let's talk about defining the terms, defining the terms. Now, there are many different terms that I could have put here, um, but I just put the ones that are the biggest ones, and I want to talk about what these actually mean, and I want to get into this just to set the tone for the rest of the study as well. Okay, so defining the terms, Calvinism. So Calvinism is the theology advanced by John Calvin and its development by his followers and other Reformation-era theologians that emphasizes predestination and salvation. It is also the doctrines and practices derived from the works of Calvin that are characteristic of the Reformed churches. Now, again, John Calvin did not come up with this. Uh, in fact, I read a stat today that in all of John Calvin's writings, 4, 000, over 4,000 times he actually references Augustine. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, this is not his theology, but he did put it together in a more systematic fashion. And that's why Calvinists don't like to be called Calvinists, because they're not actually... 
a disciple of Calvin. But it is the theology advanced by him and then its further development by his followers and other theologians that were around during that particular time. Now, Reformed or Covenant Theology. This is a system of belief that traces its roots back to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. It's a theological system of belief that claims to hold to the authority of Scripture. This is what's known as sola scriptura. The sovereignty of God, salvation by grace, that's sola gratia, through faith, sola fide, in Christ alone, solo Christo, to the glory of God alone, sola Dio gloria. So these solas that I put in there, they are known as the five solas that different Calvinists will actually claim to, and they say that they were course corrections made during the Reformation where the Roman Catholic Church erred. And we're going to talk about that too, because the reality is, is I don't even like the whole idea of the whole Reformation, and we'll get into that because there's, if you take church history, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me just take a, a minute just to explain a little bit of what I'm talking about. So growing up, I had this mindset that whenever I learned about church history, it was kind of like, okay, so you had Jesus and his disciples, and they were taught the actual words of God, and Jesus was investing in them, and, and then they went and they had their disciples, and some of those disciples we actually know, and then they started propagating throughout the known world. And so this kind of then continued, and everything was kind of all hunky-dory, and then all of a sudden there's a little bit of corruption and things in there, but it's still Christianity but then all of a sudden you show up here and now it's 15, 16, 15, 17 AD, and now we've got a problem. And Luther is like, okay, here's my 99 theses. I'm going to nail them to the door. And now we've got a problem and he's on trial. Hold on a minute. God is not the author of confusion. And yet, that's what theologians want you to believe. That Jesus had everything right, his disciples had everything right, and then as things propagated, yeah, there were some mistakes here and there, but they continued, they continued, they continued. And now, all of a sudden, after all this corruption, you have Martin Luther who reads his Bible, and I will give him credit on this, he reads his Bible and he gets saved according to Romans, and now he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church. And now he becomes the pioneer for Christianity? Like... Do you not know how much of the Roman Catholic Church he actually brought out with him? And how much false doctrine came along with him? And some of those Reformation-era theologians? And these are the guys that our modern-day theologians are pointing to as the authority for their doctrines. No. If we're going to be Bible believers, we can't do that. These guys' opinions, I'm not going to say they're all bad and they all don't mean anything, but... Pretty much. I mean, I, that's how I look at it. I, I, I not once in my studies do I go back and reference Augustine. I mean, none of them, none of them, none of them. In fact, when I took church history from Moody Bible Institute, they wanted us to read two books. One of them I have our JBI students read, and they absolutely hate me for it. But one of them is The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is written by John Calvin. And the other one is by Augustine, and he wrote a couple different books. And one of them in particular they had us read, Confessions of St. Augustine. And then they wanted us to write a reflection paper on it. And I'm like, oh, because I know what I'm going to say in these papers. I, I, I've studied church history. I've studied from a biblical perspective. And I had to write against both of these men. I had to. But I couldn't just do it because it's my opinion. I had to actually give biblical and historical references to back up what I'm actually saying. And so 
I felt like when I went to Moody Bible Institute, I had to work like 10 times harder than anybody else because it wasn't just about regurgitating information because my conscience wouldn't allow it. I had to actually put down, this is what I believe, and then back it up because if I didn't, this guy was the associate dean of theology at, at Moody Bible Institute, was my professor, that I actually had to write, here's why Augustine was not a good guy. And I got an A on the paper, so there's that. I was really glad about that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Miracles do happen. <laughs> but these are the things that all these Bible students, they point back to these men that are still very Roman Catholic in many things. Like, yeah, they may have actually corrected course a little bit on the doctrine of salvation, but you look at all these other things they brought along with them, and they point to these men as their authority rather than going back to the Word of God, Jesus Christ. When you start to understand that the Bible and God cannot be separated, when you begin to understand that the written Word of God must be consistent with the actual person of Jesus, that when God left this planet, that He gave us a book as a substitute for Him. Whew. I mean, I start to get goosebumps when I start thinking about this kind of stuff. Because that means how I treat this Bible is how I'm treating my Savior. And how I treat my Savior is how I'm going to treat this book. And it changes everything. That should change the way you even open up your Bible every single morning. That you get to be with God because this is his proper substitute until you see him face to face. That's incredible. And I'd much rather go back to that as my authority than what anybody else has to say. Like, kudos to those guys for putting their lives on the line and stepping out from the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not going to take that away from them. That was, that, was, that, was, that was big. I mean, he knew he could die by doing that. But, I mean, come on. We're talking about sound doctrine, ambassadors of God. And that's our responsibility. I will gladly take the Scriptures and nothing else. The Word of God and nothing else. I don't want anybody else's opinion. What does the Bible say? Very important. All right, let's talk about theology and doctrine. So what is theology and what is doctrine? So theology and doctrine, it is the study of God and his knowledge or his system or set of truths about any given topic found in the Bible. And we've already talked about this a little bit, but true doctrinal theology will always produce real and enduring growth and it will exalt and proclaim the greatness of God. This is big. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. So Deuteronomy 32, it is the first mention of the word doctrine in your Bible. And this is one of the rules of Bible study is the consistency of God. And Pastor Tom, I think you mentioned it on, on Sunday, the law of first mention Whenever God mentions a word or he introduces a concept in the scriptures, he is consistent in using that word or that concept throughout the Bible. And so what you'll find in most cases is that when he introduces a word, he actually defines that word and wants that to be the definition for the rest of the Bible. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, it says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, my doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, 
and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. The very first place that we find the word doctrine in your Bible, you find that it is correlated to rain. And not just any rain, it is a distilled rain like dew that falls upon the tender herb in order for it to grow and produce growth. God's knowledge, God's theology is very gentle. And it produces growth. It is not hard. It is not something that overwhelms. Now, there are things about God that are very overwhelming, for sure. But just think about that. Think about it from a parenting perspective. Like, when I treat my kids that way, like, there are times where I can be hard on my kids, but only when it's just. Like, if I've taught my children a certain pattern of behavior, and I've instilled that in them, and I have worked hard to do that and provide consistency, then I can, I can harshly discipline them. I can, I can kind of up the ante a little bit, and I can bring more accountability. But if a, if a child doesn't know what they're doing and they violate something, why would I go off on them? That makes no sense. It's the same with God. When God teaches his truth, he's very gentle. He's very loving. He's very kind because he knows, he knows how we are. And so his doctrine will always produce growth and it will always glorify and magnify God. It always will, always. John 7 is another one. Turn there to John chapter 7. Jesus talks about this. It's another really good nugget when you're reading through the Gospels that I remember highlighting one day when I came across it. John chapter 7. John 7, and let's start off in verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? This man wasn't properly trained. He didn't go to Bible school. How does he know this stuff? That's what they're saying. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will or his doctrine, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. This is very important. You know what that, those scriptures are saying? Those scriptures are saying that obedience to the will of God will straighten out our doctrine. That's, that's big. That is big. Jesus says, how can you tell what sound doctrine is? Well, when you obey God, when you obey him, you'll find out. Wow. I feel like in some theological circles, it's the opposite. You learn theology, and then your life will be right. No. Obey what you know to be true, and God will straighten out your doctrine. It's the exact opposite. This is what I love about the Bible. Sound doctrine will always lead you to more sound doctrine. And so if you know something is true in the scriptures, obey that. And as you obey that, God will teach you more. And this is such a big biblical principle. Why would God entrust you with more if you're not faithful with what you already have? It's the same with my kids. I even did this today. I mean, I talk about trusting Lucas on just a particular issue, and I'm like, I want to trust you. But if I can't trust you with this, how can I trust you with this? And how can he argue against me on that? Because it makes sense. And then I'm like, oh, okay, it's the exact same thing between me and God. I, I get it. 
But sound doctrine will always be evident by your obedience to the will of God, and it will straighten out any other doctrine that you might have that's off. So theology and doctrine is not some abstract thing. No, it's real, and it's very, very tangible. Very tangible. And Paul even talked about that to Timothy. And every good disciple should be teaching that to their disciple. It should be ongoing. Okay, let's talk about predestination. Predestination. Now, when I came to this section with predestination and election, I had to break this one out. Because there is the Calvinist definition, and then there's the biblical. And I know that's kind of like a smack in the face, but it's just true. It's absolutely true. So predestination. Here's the Calvinist definition of predestination. Divine determinism. And what does that mean? It is the act of God where all events have been eternally decreed, predetermined, and foreordained by God's divine will. And this is typically referring to the eternal fate of the individual soul. So even on the way here, I was talking to my kids about what I was teaching on tonight, and they're like, well, what is Calvinism? I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you. And I mentioned this, and they're like, well, that's dumb. (laughs) I'm like, they already get it. But then again, they grew up in our household. But honestly, when you just use half a brain, you start to understand, well, what? Like, this makes no sense. Like, so God predetermined, like, everything. Yes, everything. And then when it comes to Calvinists, there are degrees on which they actually believe that. Because then you can say, there are some Calvinists that are way on the one end of the spectrum where they're like, yeah, even when you sin, God predetermined that you would do that, which is weird. And then you have others that say, no, you do have a free will, but your free will that you actually have is to sin only. Anything good you do was predetermined by God and is under his hand. So it's just, it's very odd. That is the Calvinist definition. Now, there's the biblical definition. And I put these verse references here because this is every place in your Bible where the term predestination or the form of it actually shows up. So the biblical definition is to predetermine or foreordain. That means to appoint or ordain beforehand by an unchangeable purpose. And when God does this, it's not about the eternal fate of the individual soul. It's never about that. When God predetermines something, I mean, just look it up. When you look up Romans 8 and you look up Ephesians, Romans 8 is very simple. And again, we'll we'll go over this again. But in Romans 8, it's very, very simple. God has predetermined that anyone that is born again will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's it. There's nothing in there about salvation. It's those that are saved will be conformed into his image. And that is what God is doing in your life on a daily basis. As God convicts you, God convicts you because he wants you to be conformed into his image. When you disobey him or walk away from him, he wants to bring you back into fellowship. The other one in Ephesians is talking about the body of Christ. And all this means that there was a time in the past where God made a decision. I am going to have a body that I am going to call the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And when my son dies for sin, past, present, and future, his blood is going to be very special to that group of people. And it's not that I'm choosing who's going to be in it. I'm making a choice that that is going to exist. And anyone that is born again will be in that body. That's all Ephesians says. When you just read through it and you take the words of God as they stand, not reading into them what you want them to say, but you just read it as it stands, you find out that God had predetermined that there would be the body of Christ. It's very simple, but they muck it up. They do. They make a mess of it. 
Predestination. It is a good Bible term, and they mess it up. Same with election. That's why I had to split this one as well. Election, the Calvinistic definition, it is the act of God whereby in eternity past, he chose those who will be saved. This election is unconditional because it does not depend on anything outside of God. So the Calvinist will say, and again, we're going to go through this greater in weeks to come, but the Calvinist will say that God just randomly chose who would actually be saved, who would ever be born again, and he passed over others. And as with other things with Calvinists, they have extreme views of this one, degreeing from one end to the other. There are some people that say that there is a double predestination, that when he says you will be saved, you will go to hell. You will be saved, you will go to hell. And that's the decision that God has made. Where there are other Calvinists that say, no, he didn't determine who would go to hell, he only determined who would be saved. <laughs> and then, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, and what's the difference? <laughs> I remember growing up on the playground, when we were picking teams, and I elected certain people to be on my team, and I passed over the others because I did not want them on my team. Sorry for being logical. But that's the Calvinists. That's what they do. That's what they believe. It's very odd. Very odd. What is the biblical definition of election? It is an individual or group that God has chosen to serve him. That's it. I threw in all these references because this is every place in your Bible where any variation of the term elect shows up. So if you wanted to dive into this and start looking up every single reference, you'll be able to find out that God's elect in the Bible consists of only four things. Jesus, Israel, the body of Christ, and angels. That's it. Election has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. And we'll get into that later. Romans 11.28 proves that, but we'll get into that later. The Bible clearly teaches that the two things are completely separate. Completely separate. And then lastly, we have the term soteriology. Now, this is among all the other ology terms that theologians put out there because they just want to sound better than everybody else. But soteriology means the study of salvation. That's all it means. The study of salvation. So after going through that and everything we talked about, I really wanted to take the time to set the tone for where we're going and really the heartbeat behind it. So I hope that was received and understood very well. And next week we're going to get into the origin and the history of Calvinism. Where in the world did this come from? And why is it rearing its ugly head again and again and again? And why is it, frankly, taking advantage of Christians that are just being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? So let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It really is our rock. It really is the thing that holds us secure. And, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that you have given us a book that we can hold with our hands, that we can read with our eyes, that we can believe every single word. And, and when it comes to the, the authority of the scriptures, there, there is nothing like it. Everything that we believe must take its root in your book. It doesn't matter what our opinions might be or what we think or what we feel or really what anybody else thinks or feels. It's what did you say? So thank you for giving us an objective standard that we can really just hold on to and just be steadfast in everything that you've given us for everything in our life. So Father, continue to guide us and help us to take the things that we learned tonight and apply it to our lives that we can just be better servants and we can do more for you because you're worth it. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.